I have a couple announcements for you this morning before we begin. And, and I know you're really into it, I can tell, because you're still just talking to each other. But here we go. If you are newer, newer to Element, right outside these doors in the foyer across the way, right after this service, we're going to do this thing called a meet and greet. It's going to be 10 to 15 minutes. You can ask some questions about Element. You'll meet uh, one of our elders. You'll meet some people that work on staff. And just we'll give you the idea of who we are a little bit better. So it's just to kind of meet and see who we are a little bit more right across the way, right after service. Go, if you brought kids, get your kids first, right? And then bring your kids with you over there. And was that one good? Okay. I am being judged in the back of the room right now, saying things correctly. Uh, also, uh, we just started this new ministry at Element called The Classics. And I really like that because I really like classic music. And The Classics is for people who are 60 plus, And they are doing their first Connect get-together August 11th uh, at 6 p.m. in the barn. It's a Friday night. Time for a party, right? So uh, you are supposed to bring an appetizer or dessert, and they're going to provide, I guess, whatever else is going along with that. But Friday night, August 11th, 6 p.m., classics, classics. All right, I got a lot to tell you about and how we're going to do our notes today. But if you are new to Element, welcome. There are Bibles in the seat backs in front of you. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. Now here's my whole spiel about sermon notes for this series. We handed out these binders. If you do not get one, you can feel free to go ahead and grab one. If you do not want a binder, you don't need to take one. This isn't like a cult thing where it's like, here's our tennis shoes and our tinfoil hat, put it on and take the binder. That's not what this is. This is a way for each week that we can give you some extra resources that aren't on the communion tables. And this week's resource is a study on culture and forgiveness on the back. This is actually done by a friend of Mikey named Clyde. You can ask him all... What, Sarah? You can ask him all about that if you want to, but you can kind of walk through some of these steps. On the front side of this, these are approaches to forgiveness. And as we walk through this series, we understand each week is going to kind of push you just a little bit more into understanding forgiveness and what it looks like. You don't have to necessarily do each one of these steps on the bottom yet, but it's a way to kind of get started to move your mind around that. And these go directly into the binders that's not on the communion tables. It's outside on the table out there. What is on the communion tables is this. These are our sermon notes, and on these sermon notes, you're going to have a little recap of what we talk about, and then you get some questions, and we labeled the questions vertical. Vertical is, what is God doing now in my life? Internal is, what is now happening internally within me? And then horizontal is how I begin to live that outward in my life. And on the bottom, there's action steps that you can do. Now, it is this size, so if you have a binder, it will uh, clip directly into that binder. If you are new this week, it's like, oh, I love one of those binders. Everything from the last two weeks are already in the binder. And if you come bring a friend on week 11, which is the last week of this, and they grab a binder, all 10 weeks before that will be in the binder. If you are lazy and just like, I'll just wait till last week and grab one, don't. Grab one this week. <laughs> And take it with you. If you have a smart device, you can download an app. It is called Uversion. Once you download it, it just says Bible. And you'll click on more and then events inside of that. And what will come up is a link tree to a bunch of different things for this series. The verses I'm going to go through this morning. And really, it's going to keep you up to date with what we're going through today. But 
grab all the rest of the sermon notes, have those things start to work through what it means in forgiveness. My name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors at Element. Why don't you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? Yeah, it's a lot. Uh, this is Matthew chapter 6, verse 12, and it says this, And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Let's pray. Father, this morning, we ask that you would move us to understand what it means that we have first been forgiven by you. And then out of that, our lives would start to take place, that we would see internally what you've done and look to those around us so that we could then begin to be your ambassadors, your hands and feet, so that this world would know the great grace that we have first received that you call us then to give to those around us. Amen. Have a seat. All right, so if you haven't guessed at this point, we are going through this series called Forgive. It comes out of Tim Keller's book called Forgive. There's a little postscript that says, why should I and how can I? And that's a great question. Why should I? Yeah, why sh and how, how can I? It's one of the best books I read this year. I was talking to my friend Pete on Monday, and I tallied up the books I've read this year. 29. That is not a humble brag, but what I'm telling you is that this is the best book out of all those books that I've read this year. So I'm talking to people on staff, and I said, I wish I could just preach this book front to back. I'll plagiarize the snot out of it. And they said, why don't you do it? And I said, sounds like a great plan. But it's not as easy as I thought it was going to be. But about 75% of almost any message in this is going to be taken directly from that book. If you picked up a book, and it's like Aaron said that exactly, I want you to know that. It just helps me to go through these messages and not be like, quote, 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 quote. Assume it's a, if I say anything good, assume it's from the book because I'm not this smart. So let's, let's just go with that. Because we're doing this series because we had some things about us as a church family that we were working through. And we thought forgiveness is a really great way to look at how to forgive one another, repent with one another, grow in authenticity. So we'd be a deeper gospel-centered community. And then we want to acknowledge with you, it is summer. We understand people are in and out all the time, but if you are gone, please get our podcast. If you don't know how to do that, talk to Sarah at the Welcome Center. She'll hook you up on your phone. If you're like, I don't like podcasts, I want to watch this guy. I, if you're watching online, I don't know why. Uh, you know, this is the face for radio. I'm telling you, but uh, you can you can go and then watch the YouTube. But keep up to date because each week is going to kind of build on the previous weeks. Not that if you invite somebody, that week won't stand on its own. It will. But each week is really designed to go. With with all of the others. And if you listen to a podcast, you can slow me down. 0.75%. And then and it's also funny because I sound like I've been drinking a little bit too much. If you 0.75 is like, hey, it's really weird. Or you can speed me up if I'm not fast enough. There you go. Now, today, what I'm going to do is take a good chunk of the second chapter of this book and give you three main models of forgiveness in our world, in our culture, that do not reflect biblical forgiveness. But we think that they do. The longer we kind of walk in our culture, the more we think the, this is how you do it. These aren't centered on the gospel, so how could they be biblical? Now, as we start this, I'm going to show you a video. Uh, this is my friend Janelle. Now, some people have asked some questions about the videos that we that we're showing during this series. What I want you to understand, Janelle will say this right at the top. She will let you know she is not perfect. We do not show you these videos to be, hey, here's epitomes of forgiveness. We're trying to show you these videos up front to show you different people's views of forgiveness. And sometimes those views may not even be biblical, but we want you to see how people kind of process and deal with forgiveness. So here's uh, Janelle Cantrell. Hi, I'm Janelle Cantrell. I'd like to believe I'm perfect, but we all know better. 
It's amazing how something so long ago can still affect you today. And I think that's because it's hard for all of us to forgive. It would have been many years ago where, and it was work-related, where a friend, I had a discussion with a friend about something that was happening in where I was employed. And I thought it was wrong. And I was having lunch with my friends and uh, it made its way into the paper. <laughs> okay. And of course, right away, one of my friends apparently went and told my superior who had talked about this instead of just even coming to me and saying, hey, we need to sit, this is happening, we need to go. She just went right to the superior. Basically ratted me out, I guess. <laughs> you know, back then I didn't really deal, I didn't deal with it, I ignored it. I had a hard time, I, a hard time forgiving the person that had done that, even though I still talked with her and still went to lunch with her. I was very careful about what I ever said in front of her again. If I had approached her the way I would do it now, it would have led to reconciliation, a better reconciliation rather than I ignored it and pretended that nothing was wrong with her. Uh, I think now the way I would do, handle that is much better than just ignoring what had happened because then we never had, back then, we never had a discussion about it. So is it still with me? We're talking about it. Yes, it's still with me. And she has long since passed. From this series, I hope to learn true forgiveness because sometimes I wonder, I say the words, hey, it's okay. It's water under the bridge. I don't say, hey, I forgive you. It's water under the bridge, let's move on. But then it comes back and bugs me again. Is that true forgiveness? That it keeps coming back and bugging me? Have I truly forgiven somebody if I can't let it go? Not, not forget totally that something has happened because I, that's not part of forgiveness, I don't, I don't think. But if it keeps bugging me, not just a thought, you're there, but boy, I can't believe they did that. Is that true forgiveness? Yeah? No? What? It's like, okay. So again, that's the reason we do this is we want you to just kind of start to think as people talk through it. You might be like, oh, I totally relate to that. Oh, that's how I think. That's how I feel. Well, what I'm going to do is break these out a little better in a bit, but these are the three secular approaches to forgiving. Uh, Keller calls these, the first one's called cheap grace. Now, cheap grace is a view that you just kind of stick your head in the sand. You, you ignore it. All the emphasis, he says, is on the victim therapeutically being liberated from their anger. So confrontation with somebody might 
might take place or might not, but only if it helps that victim's inner healing. This is really kind of you bury your head in the sand. I don't want to cause any waves. I don't want to look at it. The second one he calls little grace. He has this little grace thing that goes with each one. This is really a transactional type of forgiveness, though. It means that all the emphasis is on the perpetrator meriting, earning that forgiveness from you. If you are a victim, you determine when and if that other person will get your forgiveness, if you will give up your anger. And the other person has to earn that through extensive acts of repentance and reparation. The third one he calls no grace. And this is when there is just zero chance of forgiveness. Now, later on in this series, we're going to talk about what is actually called costly grace. Costly grace is real grace. And that's a model of forgiveness that's shown in the Bible. And this model of forgiveness starts with the vertical God to us and then goes outward when we understand that horizontal to other people. Before we talk about those three human-centered models of forgiveness, though, I want you to understand the background for why they are so appealing today and why we tend to fall into these so readily because the first two weeks we did a foundation now we're building on that foundation so why are these non-biblical models so easy for us to fall into the first one is this that we live in a therapeutic culture now when i say therapeutic culture some people are like what does that mean is therapy bad no, a ther- therapeutic culture does not mean therapy is bad. Actually, therapy might be great for you if you need to work through some issues of forgiveness to move to a biblical model of forgiveness. But researchers have noted that our culture has taken this very strong inward turn. And this is reference to a therapeutic culture, this inward bent. Now, in other eras, you know, people, they would think about their larger communities. You drive into a neighborhood and everybody's lawn was just immaculate. And they did that because they wanted their entire neighborhood to look good. So your lawn would look great. So your neighborhood looked great. The armed forces had this slogan, which was, ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. Remember that? You heard that? right? Now today, it's the exact opposite. It's like, what? What can my country do for me? That's the question. Forgive my student loans? Yes. Uh, It's the middle of COVID. I need a mask. I don't want to pay for a mask. The government should give me a mask. What can the government do for me? That's, that's our mindset today. You know, the armed forces, they now change that logo. And now what is it? It's be all that you can be. And if someone comes up to you in your neighborhood and says, hey, you know, your lawn's a little overgrown. Can I help mow that? Or do you need some help with that? And you're like, don't talk to me about my lawn. How dare you go take care of your own lawn? This is my lawn. This is how everything, right? Everything has just kind of changed. We get offended when someone mentions us looking out to a wider culture around us. Instead of identity being given to us by God, we are now told that we are to look inward. You look inward and forge your own identity that is based upon your own desires. And then you move that inward identity outward and demand society honor your individual interests. And this is when we say, this is just my truth. It's just my truth. While many things in modern therapy can actually be good, Keller in the book notes that many modern pioneers of modern therapy defended individuals against these outward influences that they said would put guilt-producing standards on their patients. So take Sigmund Freud, okay? He is a polarizing figure when he was around and even today. For some reason, there's a lot of people who think every therapist loves Sigmund Freud. And a lot of therapists do not like Sigmund Freud at all. But Freud took this approach. He deconstructed any moral norms and beliefs that created any type of anxiety, any type of guilt, any type of shame. And today, in many places, the result is that our own individual authenticity means being free from any standard that we did not choose for ourselves. 
In the book Forgive, it quotes this actress who has a global following, and she tells her fans, question everything. Look for your own truth. Ask, what do I need today? And then go and get it. Isn't that empowering? Well, maybe. What if her fans disagree with her? Then she would say, yeah, what I say is going to trump what you want. The whole emphasis is on the individual moving away from any obligation to a community in order to pursue personal aspirations, personal desires. But we have to understand it's true forgiveness. It only happens in community. That's where it happens. Greg Jones says the church has been taken captive by this inward bent. He says the greatest reason we have an impoverished understanding of the practices of forgiveness is that in modern culture, if all that matters is individual autonomy, then forgiveness and reconciliation, which are designed to foster and maintain community, are of little importance. Right? If it's just about you, why forgive anybody? If you, you shouldn't have to do that. Jones says forgiveness is typically discouraged because it imposes a burden on the person doing the forgiving. And you know what? He's right. It does. Many Christians have now bought into this mentality when the exact opposite was meant to be our witness in the world. John 13, 35, Jesus will say, they will know that you are my disciples by how you love one another. The, the church Christians are meant to be a foretaste of a future world where love and community take place under the lordship of Jesus Christ. That is who we're supposed to be. Yeah, we sin now. Yes, we break relationship now. But through God's Spirit working in us, we have the ability to realize there will be healing. There is a hopeful future that we get to be a part of because our God is reconciled first to us. And our practice of forgiveness and reconciliation now speaks to that coming day because of the work that Jesus himself did. Keller laments this. He says, the resources for healing relationships and strengthening community are being eliminated by therapeutic culture. Now, the second reason why these non-biblical ideas of forgiveness become so appealing is that we live in this new shame and honor culture. It's really kind of a new type of religion. Uh, Bradley Campbell, Jason Manning, they wrote a book that talks about how Western culture has shifted away from being a truly honor culture like much of the rest of the world to what we call a dignity culture with this inward bent. It's like older cultures, but we're so turned inward in that therapeutic sense. So modern culture teaches people to demand respect and affirmation of my own identity. Whatever I deem that identity to be at a given moment, it can change, but you have to look at my identity and say, this is wonderful. And you respond with outrage at the slightest offense against your identity. Now, this happened in older cultures as well. And the difference today, though, is now we have social media. And the loudest voices on social media go out and they just start proclaiming, look what people have done to me. The loudest voices on social media today assign greater honor and virtue to people who they think have been victimized by those in power. And the further down the social ladder that somebody is, and they determine what the social ladder actually is, the greater honor then becomes possible. Campbell and Manning's critique is that this new reverse honor culture that we now call council culture doesn't value strength. It values victimhood. It values you looking for ways to be hurt and offended. They say it creates a society of constant good versus evil conflict over the smallest issues as people compete for status as victims or as defenders of victims. And what this does is it destroys our ability to lovingly overlook slights. It sweeps away any real concept of forgiveness and reconciliation. Let me give you an example. Um, a few uh, weeks ago, my wife and I, we were at Costco. 
took our puppy, you know, puppy, she's gigantic, but anyway, we brought her, brought her puppy, and she, we left her in the car. Now, our car has this thing called dog mode. You put it on dog mode, you set it to 68 degrees, and the inside of the car stays that temperature, and there's a sign that comes up on the screen, and it says, hey, don't worry, the car's at 68 degrees, my owners didn't leave me in here with the doors up, and it just, I'm in dog mode. Well, this lady comes and writes this mean note, your dog's in your car, you, you're terrible people, you're trying to kill your animal, and so my wife takes a picture of that, and puts it up on Facebook and says, you know, I don't understand why people just don't read what's on the screen. And all of a sudden people are like, yeah, what's wrong with these people? Oh God. Our culture teaches us to be outraged, to instantly put something up. How dare somebody, to, my, I, my wife didn't put it up to be like me and be like, how dare they? She just thought it was funny. I thought it was funny. And then we didn't realize people are like, yes, I will be outraged for you. You're such a victim. And it's like, whoa. But that's what our culture is like. And our culture teaches people to be outraged by the smallest thing. And this short circuits the ability to have forgiveness for one another because you gain honor, you gain virtue by, by people rising to defend you, by being offended. Now, this has also gone into politics. Politics is like a new kind of religion, but it's religion without any means of requiring and having redemption or forgiveness. Like, people who disagree with you, they're no longer just mistaken. Now they are evil heretics trying to destroy the world. And when we live this way, people become empty and isolated, and it leads to social fragmentation. Forgiveness was meant to bring people back together. These Western ideas, uh, human rights, taking care of the poor, social justice, those actually have deep roots in the Bible. Christians can be allies with people who work for racial and economic justice, but what we have to understand is our moral direction is not set by organizations. It is set by God himself, by what he has said. Our moral norms are rooted in the Bible. God is not only holy and just, he is merciful and forgiving. In Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7, God describes who He is. And He says, I am the Lord. I am merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, but quickly goes to the place where He says, but justice is real. And I will bring about that justice. Respectful interactions with opponents and forgiveness of others is part of our faith. It's how we should be able to come together with one another. But these traits are not part of this modern shame and honor culture. Today, deviations from any social norms is unforgivable. And social media just accelerates that movement towards a graceless culture. Alan Jacob writes this, The great moral crisis of our time is not, as many of my fellow Christians believe, sexual licentiousness, but rather vindictiveness. A culture without Christ isn't less moralistic. It's typically more. Their morals just change. And you have a huge set today of modern-day Pharisees holding to different type of moral interactions say, this is now what you have to do. Keller writes this, The new shame and honor culture either produces a heavily inquisitorial merited forgiveness approach or leads people to abandon forgiveness altogether. Now, a lot of you might be like, yeah, our culture is terrible. But you've got to ask the question, how often do we so easily fall into these type of things? We do. It's so simple for us to do that. We must look in a mirror first. So let's look at these incomplete views of forgiveness. Okay, so first off, cheap grace. We're going to call it that, where you just forgive because you're supposed to. And cheap grace isn't real grace at all. Okay, anyway, forgive, uh, in the Forgive book, it tells the story of an American nun named Diana Ortiz. She goes on a two-year mission trip to Guatemala to teach underprivileged youth how to read and write. She is kidnapped, she is tortured, and she is raped by members of the Guatemalan military. 
When it is found out that she was not Guatemalan, because apparently if she was, it was okay. No, okay. But her captors released her, and they told her not to tell anyone what had happened, and they said, be a good nun and forgive. That's what you do. But it wasn't just her torturers who told her that. The Guatemalan government officials were embarrassed over it, so they told her the exact same thing. She says this, I was asked by others, friends as well as strangers, not whether I was receiving any justice from my government, but whether I had forgiven my torturers. They wanted me to forgive so that they can move on. I suppose once I forgave, all would be well for them. She says Christianity, it seemed, was concerned with individual forgiveness, not justice. And that's really sad because that's a misunderstanding of Christianity. That's a cultural Christianity. Real Christianity is concerned with justice. In many places, churches in particular, abusers know how to manipulate Christian teaching to gain people's silence. Victims are told to let go of their anger to forgive and forget because God has forgiven and forgotten your sins, which God has. He has, but God brought about justice in the midst of that. And this sometimes actually compounds people's sense of guilt when they have a hard time forgiving, but that's overlooked. Forgiveness can and has been used against victims of abuse and injustice. I just finished this book by Rachel Den Hollander called What a Girl is Worth. We're going to talk about it later in the series. Um, but in this book, she talks about how this was said in her own church when she was abused. She's like, oh, you should just get over it. You should move on. God forgave you. And it's really, really sad. Sometimes people get stuck in that, and they don't know what to do. It's like, oh, I'm supposed to forgive. And if I don't forgive, I'm working against God's will, not that person who hurt me. One person said, the pressure to blindly forgive, particularly within church teaching, can keep people stuck and unsafe. I believe this easy grace can allow abuse to thrive within families and institutions. Now hear me in this. If that is what you've been told, that is not what God calls us to in forgiveness. It is not. Forgiving allows for the pursuit of justice. And it is an injustice when perpetrators are not held to account. Okay, second one, the little grace. This is a transactional type of forgiveness. In Harper's Bazaar, Jennifer Wright wrote that men accused of sexual abuse, she said forgiveness should be not be automatic. She said forgiveness is a way for them to actually hold a little bit of power. She says giving forgiveness out judiciously to those who earn it, that too is a kind of power we deserve. So she writes how an easy forgiveness model doesn't work, but neither does a never forgive model. So she says the model that she likes is make the perpetrators earn forgiveness. Now that's called transactional, a merited type of forgiveness. And a lot of people think, hey, that's a good compromise, right? Between the injustice of the forgive everything and it lets people get away with abuse and they never forgive and the bitterness that comes with that. How about this middle road? When I was talking to Janelle, I said, hey, what would have made that better? Would, is it transactional? She said, no, she just needed to do this. And I go, that's a transaction. <laughs> and, that's, and it's true. A lot of us would be like, I would feel better if this person did this. We make it transactional. Now, it has a lot of critics. One person said, forgiveness is completely overrated and just serves to create power imbalances. This is something that's been said for a really long time. The philosopher Nietzsche said that Christians, kind of mocking them, said, who had not achieved success or power in terms set by culture, they simply invented a new way to feel superior by being more kind and forgiving. Okay, Jennifer Wright says the same thing. It's why this merited forgiveness system, she says, is a way of exercising real power over someone. But that means in the end, it's not really forgiveness. It's not. It's another way to try to control others. Uh, Tim Keller says, it is a form of revenge masquerading as virtue. 
Martha Nussbaum at the University of Chicago, she talks about how you do this transactional forgiveness. She says, first the victim does confrontation. Then if the perpetrator acknowledges and responds with confession and apology, then the wrong person works through their feelings and finally the wrong person emerges triumphant, unburdened by angry emotion, her claims fully acknowledged, ready to bestow the grace of their non-anger. But she says the real condition for the forgiveness is enough weeping, imploring, and apologizing, typically involving considerable self-abasement. The abasement is the precondition for the elevation. And in the end, that's not really forgiveness. What that is, is a gauntlet through which you may a perpetrator run through until they're sufficiently wounded. And that also is not how the Bible or Jesus speaks about forgiveness. And then there's what's called the no grace model. This is where there's zero chance of forgiveness. If I was going to title it, I would call it the no soup for you model. <laughs> Seinfeld fans, okay. <laughs> so the major pressure today is now not forgive at all. It says that forgiveness is outdated. It, it is bad for us. Uh, and this, again, comes out of our self-centered culture, right? Why would I want to forgive? It is too hard. I don't want to do these things, so therefore I just won't. There's an interesting story in the Forgive book, which is actually detailed a little bit more in a Malcolm Gladwell book that came out a few years ago. But it's about this family in Canada. Their little girl was kidnapped and tortured and killed. She is found less than 1,500 feet from their home in, uh, in, this, in this shed. Now, the, the parents of this girl were in a religious community. There's a lot of shock. There's a lot of horror. There's a lot of brokenness that comes a part of this. And so they're trying to figure out how in the world to deal through this. They start talking to people. One of the people they eventually talk to is the guy in California that got the three strikes laws passed. Now, the three strikes law, you know, you get three felonies, you're in jail, no parole, you're just done. He, this happened because his little girl was killed by a felon who should have been in jail. And so they were talking to this guy, and everywhere they went, oh, this is where she did this, and this is where she did that, and this is this thing over here. And his whole life was consumed because he deified his daughter who had died, and his anger and his vengeance just overrode everything in his life. And they said, we made a decision that night that we would respond differently, and we chose the path of forgiveness. And they were met with horrified responses. They join this group called Family Survivors of Homicide. And they are told, you need to stop talking about forgiveness because it's wrong, both socially and emotionally. They were told, you could not have actually loved your daughter if you're going to offer this guy who killed her forgiveness. And they kept saying, forgiveness is going to create a more dangerous society where violent criminals would not be held accountable, even though they never said that. They never said, if I forgive this person, that justice shouldn't be brought about. They never said that. Today, the no forgiveness model usually singles out women and minorities, telling them that they should not forgive since historically they have had little advantage or opportunity. And to be fair, sometimes the opponents of forgiveness have a point. Forgiveness as an automatic, unconditional, and expected response has been a way for many people, women, minorities, to be abused and controlled. But a transactional forgiveness model can also be a barrier to justice if only the victim can determine what the wrongdoer deserves. In the midst of your anger and pain, we never think clearly. We never do. Is it the right of the victim to declare a person absolved? That's the question. Those who hold the no forgiveness model appeal not to mental health or self-respect, but to a moral appropriateness. Uh, Ilya Wassel, who was a Holocaust survivor, he wrote a couple books about it. And he was once asked if he forgave the Nazis. He responded like this, who am I to forgive? I am not God. No, I cannot forgive. And many people today think he's right because it seems morally inappropriate to forgive evil. 
Adelia Owens in uh, Where the Crawdads Sing, she writes this, Where, Why should the injured, the still bleeding, bear the onus of forgiveness? And that's a question for a lot of people today. One person said, revenge may be wicked, but it's absolutely and overwhelmingly natural. And it is. So what do you do with that? Where does the real gospel-centered forgiveness start? Where? Understanding the gospel makes it possible for us to learn to forgive others and then go speak to them for the purpose of justice, for the purpose of bringing about something that is right and maybe even in the end reconciliation if possible. The cheap grace model of forgiveness focuses strictly on the inner emotional healing of the victim, but many times it ends up letting the perpetrator off the hook. The little grace, the no grace model, seek revenge, which can, which can lead to these endless cycles of retaliation and violence. What these models lack is a transformed motivation that we set the last couple weeks, this, this model, this foundation, this vertical dimension of forgiveness. Last week I told you, human forgiveness will always and has to be dependent upon divine forgiveness, not the other way around. There is a vertical aspect of forgiveness, which is where we start. God's forgiveness of us, that's where it starts. And as we begin to deal on that, why we needed to be forgiven by God Himself, we do that internal work, that hard work in us as we understand God's forgiveness. And that leads to places where we will start to grant forgiveness to other people who have wronged us. And out of that comes this horizontal result. And the horizontal result can actually lead to places of reconciliation. The three non-Christian approaches, they start and end with the self. They start and end with us. And therefore, they do not truly become forgiveness. Many times, what they become is vengeance. And this is the thing. When you learn how to truly forgive, your justice-seeking will be justice-seeking, not vengeance-seeking, because we want real justice. Last week, we talked about the parable of the unforgiving servant in Matthew 18, 23-35. Well, it shows that our understanding of forgiveness can only lead to true forgiveness when we understand what the king has first done for us. The parable's teaching on forgiveness addresses our society's anxiety and confusion regarding forgiveness. When we are a people who come to a place where we experience God's divine forgiveness, it will bring a healing that is grounded in Jesus' costly sacrifice. Before forgiveness can ever truly be extended to anybody else in any meaningful way, we must remember that we were sinners, that we were in need of mercy like everyone else, so our hearts can become filled with His love and His affirmation. And again, then our justice-seeking becomes justice-seeking and not vengeance-seeking. We don't do this again for our sake. We do it for justice's sake. We do it for God's sake, the perpetrator's sake, and any future victim's sake. We seek out real justice. We have to understand, understanding the gospel brings a change to the motivation for why we do what we do. Our society cannot live without forgiveness, and when it's absent, the results become horrifying. Studies have shown most mass shootings are by people who nursed grudges. Shooting deaths in urban areas tend to be revenge attacks between gangs or family members. Uh, in the Forgive book, it talks about uh, this guy who murdered these people that were in his car carpool and he shot and killed six of them before the cops got him and as he lays dying he's talking to the police and he's explaining the grudge he held against every single person and why he killed them and he was angry that he didn't get to kill the last guy all of this inside our hearts hannah arndt a jewish philosopher writes after the holocaust and she said this without being forgiven released from the consequences of what we've done our capacity to act would as it were be confined to one single deed from which we could never recover we would remain the victims of its consequences for 
ever. This is why forgiveness is so important. Because if you're not, you don't understand it, you're going to be stuck in one moment the rest of your life. It just keeps coming back up. Martin Luther King Jr. said, He who is devoid of the power to forgive is devoid of the power of love, of really understanding love. To be a healthy society, one in which broken relationships can be regenerated, we must come to the place where we understand forgiveness. Arndt and King write in times that represent really horrendous things, systematic uh, oppression, and that had to be met with truth and love, with justice and mercy and forgiveness both. And when we talk about this, yeah, there's these huge forgivenesses that are out there, and I get that, but what about the little ones every single day to you and me? We need to understand how to do the small forgivenesses every day as well, because no one can truly live until we learn the urgent need to how to do this, to how to start with what Christ has first done for us. When you do just forgive silently, because it's not a big deal. I was talking to somebody about this the other week where, you know, my, when you're married, you irritate each other. Okay. And there are some things, it's like, this isn't a hill I need to die on. Why is this a big deal? Right? And there's certain things just like, yeah, okay, whatever. But then there's other places where you do need to bring the matter up. And there are other places where you do need to talk about forgiveness, even if the other person is reluctant to admit fault. <clears throat> Guys, we can't love without forgiveness. And we can't live without it either. And if we're going to be saved from ourselves and learn to forgive, we need the resources that God provides in the gospel. Do you understand the gospel gives us two prerequisites for a life of forgiveness? The first one is this. It brings us spiritual humility because we were saved by God himself because we needed to be saved. You cannot stay bitter towards someone if you don't feel superior. The only way you stay bitter is when you think you're superior. If you feel that, oh, I would never do anything like that. Oh, the, the, those who don't forgive show they have not really accepted the fact of their own sinfulness. Uh, the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy 1.15 calls himself the chief of sinners. And he's not exaggerating. He is saying he is capable of sin just like the worst criminals in the world. And to remain unforgiving means you remain unaware of your own need for forgiveness. And the second thing the gospel does is it gives us a spiritual wealth, this spiritual assurance. Like we can begin to be gracious to others because we're not insecure of what God has done. I mean, it is God's grace and love that's been given to us. And once we know God's grace and love and forgiveness, there is a limit to how bad anybody could ever hurt us because our identity is found in Him. See, when you understand the gospel, someone else is not going to be able in the end to touch your real identity who you are. The more we rejoice in our own forgiveness, the quicker we can be to forgive others. And this is why after that whole 26 weeks, half a year in the book of Galatians, Paul comes down and he says, if I'm going to boast, I'm going to boast in the cross of Jesus Christ in Galatians 6, 14. Now, we're going to talk about how forgiveness does not mean letting people off the hook for abuse or crimes. We will talk about that and get to those things. But what it really does mean in the end is the willingness to start to pray for those people who have hurt you to move to a point where you want their salvation, you want their redemption, because Jesus died and rose for the best and the worst of us. I mean, literally somewhere on this planet is, is the best person, right? But they're still not Jesus. They're still not perfect. And literally on this planet, there's the worst person, maybe even in this room, right? <laughs> and we have to understand that God's grace and forgiveness is given to all of us because every single one of us need it. There is forgiveness, there is restoration, there is hope that comes from what He has done. And it is so easy to fall into these non-biblical modes of forgiveness and what they look like to be like, yes, this happened to me, I'm angry, I'm going to hold this until this person does this. We have all these different ideas of what that looks like. 
And yet true forgiveness is found at the cross in what Christ has first done for us. And only that can translate into real forgiveness for one another. And so today, what we do, like we do every week, is we bring you to a place of communion. We don't pass it around the room. It's a response as you begin to understand what God has first done for you. And this is why you break a cracker like Christ's body was broken for us. And you dip it in the wine or the grape juice as we remember His sacrifice for us to pay for our own forgiveness. That vertical dimension that God has first extended Himself to us. And as we begin to understand that and work that internally, that will begin to work outward in our lives, where we are called to seek justice, but not vengeance. And true justice will only be justice when it's not vengeance. And this is the ways that we start to understand what that looks like. So we invite you to communion today. If you need prayer, you might be in a place today where you have something against somebody else and you're just angry and it is consuming your life and you don't know what to do with it. If you would like somebody to pray with you or talk with you about that, right across the way in, in the lounge, they'll be there during music, they'll be there right after service. You can grab somebody and talk and they'd love to pray with you about that. Again, we are doing this series over 11 weeks. And, I, and after every week, I tell you this, I, I am not assuming that you're going to walk out of this room and be like, forgiveness, done, I'm perfect, I got it all together. I'm going to assume by the end of the 11 weeks, if we can just move the needle in your life to understand Christ's forgiveness of you like from like 1 to 1.5, <laughs> and then maybe your forgiveness of others kind of moves because of that as well. This is God draws us to himself. He grows us. He moves us. Christianity, it is a trip. It is not a destination. And God continues to grow and move us day by day, minute by minute, second by second, as we surrender to his spirit's work in our lives. And that's what we want this series to do. Move us to understand the gospel better so that we begin to live as a gospel-centered people better. And so I'm not saying if you, by the end of the end of this, if you're not perfect, you're, you just messed up. No, the, God is still going to continue to move. So let's walk with him through this journey. Uh, Element, as a church, we, we do not pass a plate for an offering. There's offering boxes on the side walls. You can give online. But just like communion, just like prayer, giving is also a response to what God does in our lives. And that's why we don't pass a plate, because we want God to do a work in you to understand his graciousness and his goodness. And that would, in turn, make us be a people who respond. And I encourage you to grab those sermon notes. You don't have to take a binder if you don't want one. But grab the sermon notes, kind of walk through those questions of what is, you know, internally, what, what is God doing in you? What's that vertical dimension? And then how do you begin to live that out? And maybe you're like, I'm not ready to do this. Well, you know what? Okay, okay. Let God continue to do his work in your life as you understand the beauty of his forgiveness of you. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I ask that you would take and move us to be a people who understand better our own forgiveness from you. And as we begin to understand that forgiveness, it would change our own hearts in such a way that our view of those around us would become more tender. That our view of what real justice is supposed to look like would be real. It wouldn't be something that we, that we set aside because we think, oh, I'm just supposed to forgive and forget. But we could seek justice in a way that isn't vengeance. And even in those tough places that we would pray for the people who have hurt us. And for the people that we have hurt 
that in the end, we could all be restored by coming to trust what you have done in our lives. And that we would be able to be a people who walk into this world as ambassadors of yours, speaking of your forgiveness and your grace and your hope and your mercy and your love, which has first been given to us. That we would be changed because of what you have done. So teach us to live our lives glorifying you in response to what you have done and living out our lives with others by being your children and your priests, representing who you are to this world. And I ask that you would give us the ability to see the type of forgiving we have been doing versus the type of forgiving that we have received from you. And there would be a whole new life and hope and joy brought about because of your goodness first given to us. We ask that in your son's good name. Amen. We drop these curtains. What I want you to do while we just kind of run through a couple songs is kind of say, God, what type of forgiving am I doing in my life? Is it, is it transactional? Is it no grace? Is it just stick my head in the sand? Because I think what happens is we start to kind of drift between all three of those at some point. And as we get hurt, we don't naturally sit back and think about what God has first done for us. Our offense becomes so strong that what God has done kind of takes a back seat. So right now, before you take communion, say, God, what type of forgiveness do I center my life around? And I ask that you would first show me your forgiveness of me, and then maybe you could start thinking about those just a little bit differently. And again, it's hard work, and a lot of us do not want to do it, because it is so hard. But God calls us to it, to truly be those who respond to His great mercy first given to us. So ask Him that. Let the Spirit move in your heart. Come and take communion. Sing some songs with us. And then we will head out again into this world as His hands and feet, worshiping fully who He is because of what He has first done in us.